Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, there's only two problems I see with this. And I said, what, Joe's? One, your big fat mouth will get both of us fired if anybody finds out what I'm about to propose. How playing hooky at his day job took Anthony Giglio down a path to being one of the most influential voices on wine in the world. That story right now, I'm Steve Parker Jr. This is Parker on Tap. Anthony, welcome to the show. Steve, you are too kind. Well, look, your resume speaks for itself. You know, wine director for the American Express and Cheering Global Lounge Network, longtime contributing editor or wine editor for Food and Wine Magazine. You've written for Esquire, New York Magazine, The Rob Report, too many others to name. There were literally dozens to look up. Um, but, to, you know, beyond that, what are you up to these days? Like, what's new for, for Anthony now? Um, wow. Uh, I have to say, Steve, um, the pandemic hit and my bread and butter, you know, writing, my writing life is my true love. But any writer will tell you it doesn't pay like it did in the 90s. Like the internet really, really knocked the floor out for journalists um, because the, the endless, endless, endless vacuum for text uh, has devalued it to, you know, it's just, everyone's just looking for clickbait and this and that. And to get really good writing articles from publishers who will pay is rare, but I certainly can get a good assignment here and there. Um, I've had to figure out other things to do and it was the speaking gigs which is actually, that's how we met in Nashville because I was hired by a, a bank to come down and speak at one of their- Yeah, their well, that, so that was after we had already met a first time, yes. but, you, but yeah. you were going to Nashville. I was happen, I happened to be there at the same time because I was living in New York then. And we, you know, we met up and went out to dinner and had a great time as usual. Wait, you were living in New York back then? As far as I can remember. I don't remember, it's so long <laughs> I ago. Mean, I, Listen, before, I, before COVID, I was traveling, right, you know, I, don't, I don't know, right. 70, 70 flights a year. So right, right, right. depends on where did I live at any given moment. Um, so, so, you know, and, and, and I, I, I love, love connecting at, um, you know, hosting wine dinners and speaking at them or classes or seminars, all those fun things I was doing. But there weren't a lot a month. I mean, I, you know, there was a goal that I needed to try and get at least four gigs a month to pay the rent. And um, I had... You know, and this time of year right now, so we're talking a year ago, last January, things were so slow. There was nothing happening. February, one or two, March, one or two. And then I started to, I, I literally contracted about 12 gigs through July that I was so excited about. <laughs> Seriously, like between February and March, early March, I, had, I said to my wife, I'm like, oh my God, this, this year is turning around. It's going to be, it's going to be a good one. And then the lockdown hits and literally like dominoes, everything was postponed or canceled. And I, I, I literally sat in uh, on the couch for about two weeks, just look, using my laptop to read the news. And my wife was like, get up, get off your butt and figure this out. And I said, what am I going to do? And she said, I don't know, but I'm hearing a lot about Zoom. So my wife, Tony, who you've met, Tony Lopresti, she's, um, 
She's the director of marketing for Food Away Magazine. And although that might sound like nepotism, it's a complete coincidence because she came to Food Away much, 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 much later than me through American Express, which used to own Food and Wine. That's my connection to Food and Wine and Amex back in the uh, the 90s when Amex used to own a whole bunch of magazines. So um, Tony's now at Food and Wine as marketing director. And um, so I'm, I'm considered on the editorial side, so we don't really mix just in case anyone's checking. Um, she says, I'm hearing a lot about Zoom. I have no idea what that means, but Google it. <laughs> so, you know, when none of us knew how to use Zoom, uh, I, I started to, to, you know, to test it out and, and ask friends about it. And an event planner in New York, uh, David Landgraf, um, who's, uh, his company's called Make It Happen. And he hired me, not hired me, sorry, asked me if I could partner with him to do something free. He said, you know, we're all doing yoga. We're all doing life coaching. We're all offering our clients things to get them engaged while we're all home panicking. But what do we, you know, can we do a wine tasting and how would it look? And I said to him, you know what? Um, given that we don't want people to, people couldn't go out shopping while the liquor stores were closed. Um, I said, you know what? Why don't we do a BYOB, ask everyone to raid their house for sparkling wine? Because I have a theory that everybody has sparkling wine of some level at home. Either the really good champagne that you're keeping for the special occasion that will never come before the bottle goes bad. Um, people keep it in the fridge where it's the worst place to store sparkling wine because the dehumidifier in the fridge is killing your wine every day. Um, and I go, and then there's the cheap, really cheap stuff, the Prosecco that your cheap guest brings to dinner because- The mums, the mums. <laughs> worse, no, they're bringing, they're bringing $8 Prosecco. And there you go. They bring that to your house. And, and, and like, so that's just sitting somewhere in a cabinet. I go, but the point being, I will connect the dots to everything that anybody shows up with between the humongous family of champagne and sparkling wines made like it and how Prosecco belongs on its own planet because it's not made nearly the same way or the same style or for the same purpose. And that's why it's so much cheaper. Yeah. So all to say, there's no right or wrong here, but let's stop calling everything champagne and let's 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 clear up for everybody why prosecco is so popular, even though people don't want to admit it. We sold in 2019. Uh, sorry, we bought Americans bought 60 million bottles of prosecco and 13 million champagne, and yet anything that arrives in a glass with bubbles is called champagne. So I wanted to say, like, we need to let's clear this out. And it was so much fun. I mean, because well, you you know, it's funny. Those are interesting conversations. And we're going to get to a few of those here in a bit because I want to cover some of that that you and I have talked about before with, you know, lack of transparency or lack of just proper information in the marketplace, right? right? People call right. things the wrong things. Um, but I do miss, you know, the in-person. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that all the, you know, the Zoom experiences have gone great for you. And yeah, and so, so that's what happened, Steve. So I did that. I did that as practice. I did a few, you know, freebies. And, and just put it out to my, my email list to see what people would, would join. And then I, I, had to, I had to figure out, and it took, it took a few weeks, maybe a month or two actually, to get it all, the kinks sorted out, but how to get wine shipped to multiple states is a humongous problem for anybody, and even you know, retailers, because they, they actually have to uh, buy licenses for the 33 states that allow interstate distribution, but it's not easy and not all the retailers do it. Nobody, you know, some don't want to pay for it. So finding that kind of, I, cause you know, you can only use one retailer to connect all the dots. Otherwise the wines don't match. And so that turned into a, 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 a for me, a hurdle that I, I, I surmounted and that opened the floodgates because then everybody who had wanted me for real events was live events was hiring me for virtual. 
And then doing the virtual events, people would then have easy contact with me. They would be able to find me instantly and then they'd write and say, hey, I would love to do that with, with my clients or my company or my team or whatever. And I did, I did barely any marketing for this, Steve. It just keeps going. Well, and, it, and it's so fantastic because, and we can talk in a little bit, I want to talk to you about you know, relationships because I know you're big on that and how you build them. And I think you and I have you know, similar, some similar ways of approaching those. But having an event like that really opens the door for people just to have normal conversations like we're having now yeah. um, and, and in small groups, right? Or, or sometimes large ones, but I've been able to be fortunate enough to participate in a few of those with you um, and have really enjoyed it. You know, the, it wasn't the last time we were together, but a few times ago, I remember this. It was, it was roughly this time of year. It was, I think it was February in New York City. Um, I had committed to running one mile per day that year. <laughs> and in this particular day, I hadn't done the run. I didn't do it that morning. And you and I were meeting for a late lunch. Things around like 145 at the Nomad. Well, what was going to be a light lunch with a glass of wine turned into a few wines, turned into an afternoon, which turned into an early evening cocktails in the library there, which ended up with me going back to my hotel, changing into my workout gear, running my mile at 8 p.m., half drunk, or certainly tilted, you know, like for sure. Um, but I hit the emergency stop on that thing at the one mile mark immediately. It was the worst, but I was committed. You got to give me credit. I remember um, that. You ran every but, day of the year, didn't you? A whole year? Uh, I ended up doing 371 days and, and, and my patellar tendon in my left knee got a slight tear and it was pretty painful. So I stopped, but um, that was, what's well, another conversation for our time. It was fun though. Um, but, you know, look at being in, being in person with you and spending time or even through, you know, Zoom with you, which I've done. Um, not just today, but in other times is always a great experience. But before we get too far ahead, let's go back to when you were a young child for the oh. record. And, and for the record, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not <laughs> licensed in any way. So if something comes up that's sketchy, I can't help you. Um, but let's talk. So your grandmother's kitchen and your deeply entrenched Italian upbringing. Tell me, tell me a little about that and share what elements of that created the ambition for you to be who you are today? Um, so I grew up in Jersey City um, where, uh, I, I always joke, all eight of my great-grandparents uh, came to New York City from Southern Italy in the 1880s, early turn of the century. And all eight of them landed in New York City, worked their way from Manhattan to Jersey City because they all made a wrong turn. And that's like I joked in an article I wrote in Food & Wine, like, why Jersey City? Some of us are just luckier than others, which, you know, could be taken <laughs> both ways. Right. But, um, you know, so, so I grew up there. My, you know, so I'm third generation, um, but second generation Jersey City, I guess. Uh, and um, I, uh, we lived in a row house uh, where my mother's parents lived upstairs. So my, my Nana Rose and my Poppy Jim, where my, you know, they lived upstairs. And even though it was a two family with separate entrances and separate doorways, there was the, you know, the, the common staircase that came down through the kitchens. Um, and we leave the doors wide open because it was ostensibly a one family, even though it's really a two. So I, my waking moment, I would literally sit up, jump out of bed and run up the stairs to my grandmother. Cause my mother was probably working um, or, you know, out and about, but I would just go right. My grandmother would have the table set ready for me. Cause um, I'm not going to lie. I was the joy of her life. And, um, I had two older sisters who were completely jealous. They called me Moses, Jesus, you know, every, every, every possible, you know, honorific uh, because everyone treated me so special. But my grandmother and I did have a really great relationship. And she um, was such a, uh, an interesting character, uh, uh, pulled out of 
uh, eighth grade um, to go work for the family because our parents had 12 kids. I think eight survived. Um, and she was the second and her older sister was handicapped. So she had to go work in a laundromat and never got to go to high school. And so for her education, her, her being robbed of education became her mission to make sure that everyone around her got educated. So she went up paying for all of us, um, her kids, wow. five grandchildren, and we got savings bonds that I'm still, still cashing out because, you know, she said, do not cash them out before 30 years. And I still have them because she only died 10 years ago. And, um, she was this uh, force of nature who, who just kept saying to me, you, you need to be better than all the men in this family. And she was, she was mad at her father for pulling her out, mad at her father for having so many kids, mad at her father for a million things. So that, that turned into something of a, like a, a theme in, in, you know, for all the men in her life that, and she would say to me, you're gonna be the better one. I'm gonna, you know, I want you to go to college. I want you to go to Italy. I want you to bring back the language, all the things they took away from us. And so she was this, amazing force and really nurturing force. We'd cook together. I was always in trouble, by the way, with my dad, her son-in-law, they didn't get along so well. Um, and so she would always like, you're, you know, I want you to grow up to be better than him, which wasn't really nice to say to a little kid because it conflicted me, but I kind of got it. Um, Italian, Italians don't hold things back very much. No, not in at my all. experience. <laughs> no, no. And so, um, so she, uh, so, so she would say like, you know, I want you to, I'm sorry. She would like, you know, let's do a cooking project. Cause I, by the way, and Steve, I was the least athletic kid on the block. Right. So just, you know, I, I was a, a target on my back to pummel me if I, you know, got in the way of any of the, the sporty kids, but uh, I would stay with her and we'd watch cooking shows and we'd cook together and make dough and pasta. And my father would get home and he would like, if I was upstairs, he came up like a bear, like get out side now. And then he'd like, we'd whip baseballs at me. That's what I, that story I tell in the moth is, is, is accurate he'd whip 90 he was a great baseball player which is actually great people should search for anthony's interview on the moth because it is unbelievable it's called um, to these stories it's called listen here fancy pants because that's that's it's my amazing. dad's nick, my dad's nickname for me is fancy pants uh we we you know we, we resolved uh, the, the moth tells you how we were all how we resolved our uh our my horrible childhood with him but um, and we're, we're great friends now. He literally calls me like every other day on, on his iPhone now, which we gave him so he could uh, use FaceTime and he constantly calls just to chat and catch up. So we're, we're good now. And he's, that's great. Uh, so anyway, she, she was the one who, who pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. And, and I think that that's, you know, that was one of the driving forces in my life to exceed. Is that what gave you ambition? I mean, she pushed you and it sounds like she was Look, she had a rough upbringing and she had rough situations to deal with, but it also sounds like in spite of that, she was also very loving and nurturing. And yeah. is that, is that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that what gave you ambition? It was. Uh, I, I became, I mean, no one in my house talked about education, not even my parents, like Steve. I can, we're, so now my daughter is, my daughter, Sophia is getting ready for you know college. She's getting her applications back. She's getting acceptance letters back now. And so we're, you know, we're biting our nails in this, in this crazy time of we're not even able to visit colleges. Um, everything was virtual. And, you know, so like we're now in a completely different, and we keep reminding her, both Tony and I, that neither of us came from families that stressed education or even understood how to guide us. Like neither of our parents, four, you know, two, four parents between us, um, gave us any advice on how to get to college, what we were supposed to be doing in college, it, you know, why we needed to go to college. You know, it wasn't, a, you know, like my parents, it was a choice. You know what I mean? It was crazy. Like, and, and when I told them I was going to school in New York City, 
I went to Fordham University and they said, why do you want to put yourself in danger like that? And I was like, because New York City in the 80s was a, you know, a shit yeah. show. Yeah. So, but I mean like that, you know, it, it, my grandmother was the one who was saying, you're going to college and I'm paying for it. I don't care what anybody says. And like, so like, it was interesting that, um, yeah, she talked about education more than anybody and what it would do for me. And I blindly followed her, not because there was no other, there was no other way. She wouldn't have it. And I, I thank her to this day, but, and then I, Steve, there's so many, so many angels in my life. Um, if I ever write my never to be written autobiography, which has two working titles, um, fancy pants, of course, but also Husky for life. Cause I've always been overfed and, uh, <laughs> I used to go get my Catholic school uniforms in the Husky section when I was a boy, which I used to actually have those <laughs> make you feel bad. Well, um, I mean, so, so it sounds like, you know, I mean, and, and we've spoken about it before. I mean, I've heard a lot of these stories um, and I heard a lot about your grandmother and I've, I've had her sauce that you've made for me before. And, you know, and um, it sounds like, you know, there's areas of your life from her that gave you ambition. There was just the way you were brought up and, and even experiences, say, from your dad, right, that, that yeah. gave you a, a desire and a need to do something different or have ambition. Um, you know, and, and so then you move forward in life. And then at some point, you know, we all have these different crossroads or these, these forks in the road moments that define us where we, 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 um, and we all look, we all have more than one of these decisions we have to make in life, but we head down one path and we abruptly go down another. Can you pinpoint and just take one of these moments, like one moment that's a key moment for your life or your career, what would it be? And where were you when it happened? Um, a hundred percent. This is, this is complete clarity when you ask that question and, and, and I'm thinking, how do I sequence it? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in, I'm 22. I'm just out of college. Uh, I had a brief stint at travel and leisure magazine, which I was so, so fortunate to land a job like that. And I actually competed with other kids from my journalism school. So like there were th two or three friends that I felt bad for. We were all went to, we all showed up for the interview the same day through a headhunter and I got the job and it wound up being the worst job on the planet. Um, because uh, the culture there at the time was not uh, was not nurturing in any way. It was it was it was a hierarchy like something out of the Devil Wears Prada. Um, and and I lasted six months and quit, and then went back to my in, my old internship at PC Magazine while I waited to find another job. And they were very kind to me there. And I wound up at a trade a real estate trade magazine called uh, National Real Estate Investor. And my editor there, Dora Hatris, I. I will say it every time, and I we're, we're friends on Facebook now. We found each other after years. I'll explain that. But she, I, I literally owe my career to her because she's the one who said to me when we would have you know coffee in her office every morning. Uh, back then, you could smoke, and she would always smoke, uh, and I would just sit there and we'd talk about our dating life. She was ten years older than me, but we were both single, and I would tell her what I did the night before and you know what wine I had, and I didn't even hear myself. And she would say, "Why are you here?" And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, why aren't you writing for a wine magazine? And I said, because I'm not a 70 year old retired British lawyer. I have no idea. Like what, what does that even look like? And right. She, she goes, that's why you need, that's why the world needs a 22 year old wine uh, critic from you know, your age. And I was like, I don't know. And it, it kind of just, it, you know, onto the next topic. And within a month, I'm literally reading Details Magazine on the steps of the, the post office on 8th Avenue, which is now just actually, um, it's the new uh, Penn Station that they just dedicated last two weeks ago. I'm sitting now on the steps reading Details Magazine and it says careers, 1992, 92 careers for 92. 
So uh, one of them is become a sommelier, meet chicks. And I'm like, become a sommelier. And I read it, it's about this guy who, you know, grew up in the Catskills and uh, took a wine course in New York City at the Sommelier Society and um, came down to New York in the 70s and, and wound up opening like Acromero wine shop or, or managing it or something like that. But it was inspiring enough that I thought, all right, I'm gonna call and see what happens. And I call and, uh, and whenever I tell this story, by the way, I, I remind like the kids in the room, like I had to call information, there was no internet. I left a message on a, on a, on a machine and pre cell, pre cell phone, <laughs> pre internet, pre -internet. Yeah, for, for sure. If it was pre cell phone. Uh, right. So I, I, uh, I got a call back and the woman said, um, you know, the classes start on Tuesday. There's only two seats left. Do you want to do it? And I said, sure. And she goes, we'll see you at noon. And I was like, noon. And she goes, yeah, it's for restaurant professionals. You, what's the problem? I'm like, I, I'm a professional journalist and I work all day. So I went back to Dora and I said, remember that idea you had? About becoming a wine expert and she said yeah and i told her the story and she said well there's only two problems i see with this and i said what she goes one your big fat mouth will get both of us fired if anybody finds out what i'm about to propose and i said okay she goes two if i let you go you have to make up the hours so that if we get caught we really are covering ourselves even though we probably won't survive getting caught so Again, back to point number one, your big fat mouth. And dude, we were in a huge office, like you know, 60, 70 people. And I would literally hang a jacket on my chair on Tuesdays at noon and leave the light on my desk and all that. And she would shuffle boards and bring stuff back and forth and make it look like I was in and out. And if anybody asked, she would say, oh, I sent them to the typesetter. I sent them to the copy fitter. I sent them to, you know, to get supplies. Oh, so this, so this went on for a long time then? Uh, almost a year. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> It's yeah. a lot to hide. <laughs> so I had to eat lunch at my desk. I never, I never ate, I never ate outside again while I had that job because I had to make up all the hours. I made up the four hours, you know, that way. And um, she, uh, so then I, I get my diploma and I still know what to do with it. And she walks over to my desk again and says, please tell me you saw this in the New York Times yesterday. And it was a, and, you know, from the want ads. Back when pre-internet, you had to read the want ads. And it was Metropolitan Area Wine Magazine Seeks Managing Editor. And I said, I wouldn't have answered that. It's managing editor. And, and in the hierarchy of magazines, that's number two. Like that's so, so far above my pay grade as assistant editor um, or editorial assistant probably back then. And she said, I don't care. Dial the phone number right now in front of me. And I called and it was Wine Enthusiast Magazine when it was brand new. It was still stapled back then. Um, Tish, W.R. Tishman, who went by Tish, he answered the phone and I got an interview. And he liked me and, and he said, when we met, he said, so here's the deal. You manage no one. It's only me and you. So it's a title. I'm giving you a title instead of money because the money's not great. But in two years, you'll be able to open door. It'll open doors everywhere. And he was right. And I took the job and I was up in Westchester. I was miserable traveling up to Westchester every day, but I did it. And then I came back to New York a few years so, later. It's so amazing. And you didn't, and you know, you were young, right? I mean, you were still 22, like 22 years old. I can remember um, <clears throat> when I was first graduated college and I got my degree in healthcare administration, which is nothing related to what I do now, obviously. But I'm from Nashville, Tennessee originally, right? And so I knew I was going to go back home after college. And, and I felt if I got a degree in that, I would have a leg up because Nashville's really known for music. But what makes that city tick is healthcare, you know? And so, so I um, got that degree. I went and had this job interview and I won't tell the whole story, but I was so excited for it. 
because this is 1995, right? It's like internet's just starting. And this job was to help run the internet division of this Fortune 500 company. And so there ended up, there were five of us that were, you know, in our 20s that were running this whole, this piece of business for, for this big, big corporation, um, which we had no business doing at the time, which, which is another fun story. But when I left, um, the, one of the ladies I interviewed with, she said, I hope to, uh, to see you on Monday. But I didn't even know what that meant. Like I, they didn't offer me a job or anything. They called me that afternoon and said, Steve, we'd like to offer you the job. I was like, I'll take it. And they, they said, would you like to know what you're going to get paid? And I said, sure. I didn't care. Right. I really didn't care. And it was, I think it was like 26000 or $27,000 a year. It was, it was literally, you know, not much at all. I had to live at home with mom and dad. Right. So, but it was just one of those opportunities that you step into and you'll, you may never get that experience again. And I think there's so much to learn from just taking a step into something that's, that's unknown a bit. Um, and, and, you know, where does that go and where, where do you end up? Yeah. I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to Parker on Tap, a podcast where you have lively conversations with people you need to know. I'm your host, Steve Parker Jr. In this episode, we're talking with wine expert and rock on tour, Anthony Giglio. If you enjoyed this conversation, and you should, please share it with others. You know, also, you know, Anthony, moving along, like I read in New York Times, uh, in the New York Times, that you developed your love for wine when you were in utero. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that when you, and I didn't know this about you, actually, until I read this, but when you were little, you used to mix cream soda with wine. Yeah. Is that true? And how did you, is that how you discovered your passion for wine? And actually, and how old were you? Um, so in, in our big Italian-American circus of a family, Sundays were that's those sacred, uh, big, you know, midday, all day, lunch into dinner kind of things at my grandparents, in my grandparents' basement, which was the basement of the house I grew up in. And um, my, uh, you know, the table would be set, like, and literally my dad was, a, my dad was, a, you know, a, a contractor. Um, he built these two huge plywood tables, so 12, like 24 feet in total, so that there would always be enough room for people when they rang the bell. And so we'd have these big lunches in the basement. And uh, my cousin and I would be in charge of decanting the wine from the gallon into carafes uh, to put down the table. And they were, it was always ice cold red wine. Um, and everybody got rocks glasses. There were no wine glasses, no stem glasses. It was rocks glasses with ice cubes because everyone drank it super cold. It was crazy. The kids table off to the left had the same setup and a bottle of cream soda with the carafe of wine. So we would get, we, we jokingly called it the spaghetti spritzer, which was uh, a big heap of red wine and then a big float of, of ginger ale or cream soda, whatever they had. And it was to dilute the wine, but teach us that wine belonged on the table. And um, we didn't know that was a big deal until, you know, socialization, maybe when we were, you know, older and we realized other families weren't doing that kind of thing. Um, I'm not going to say that made me passionate about wine, but I, it, it just started the, 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 the clock ticking that wine was always on the table. And I, I then was always looking for it. Like when, you know, when I would set the table for my family or when we, even when we were having smaller lunches with my parents and stuff, wine would come out, wine would come out. And I, I was drinking probably a lot of garbage back then, but it was, uh, it was something that just stayed with me. And then I remember in high school, I was the kid who knew about wine. So, you know, like at the party, when we'd have parties and such, and there was a ton of beer, of course, but I would be in charge of sourcing the Riuniti. <laughs> oh, listen, 
my dad was reuniti salesman of the year in 1982 and 83. Are you serious? We have this plaque. My dad's passed away now, but we had this plaque. It's a clock actually with this, this big plaque on it. Yeah. I'll send you a photo of it. Oh my gosh. Um, reuniti. It's on ice. It's so nice. <laughs> so, uh, Castello Bonfi in Tuscany mm-hmm. is built with the Reuniti fortune that the two brothers who lived in Long Island uh, formed with Reuniti. They brought Reuniti back to the U.S., made bazillions, and then went back to Italy and bought a real luxury brand, uh, Bonfi, uh, which is a, you know, a, a Brunello di Montalcino. And you know, I, I wish we could talk to your dad about it, but he'd, he'd be shocked to know or maybe not. Maybe he would. He would say, "I'm not surprised to hear it." Um, those brothers, the two brothers who founded uh, Banfi and Reuniti, uh, they introduced American hospitality to Tuscany. And we all say the Italians are, you know, the most gracious host and this and that. And that's, and, you know, that I've, of course it's possible and true. You know, depending on who we're talking about. But they didn't have American style hospitality where, in wine country, you should be able to go up to a winery that you love and pull in and visit. It was again like they'd have gates closed. You weren't there was no access to any wineries without appointments, and you had to rank, and you had to be a member of the trade or a member of the press. So it just wasn't even culturally acceptable. And they were like, "Well, we're you know in America, our doors are open, and we know the Americans are going to come see us." And everyone lost their minds about it because then it set a precedent. But they realized the Americans were coming and buying like crazy. So it it it, it they're 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 credited with pushing Tuscany to open its gates, open its doors and, and uh, change the way they, they were receiving guests, which was very, very exclusive and, and very backwards back in the 80s. That's a great story. Well, you parlayed all these experiences into, you know, a, a long now standing relationship with American Express. And, and when they started to open the Centurion lounges, you know, they hired you to be the wine director and make those choices. And, and those experiences come to life. And, and fortunately, I travel enough that I get to experience them every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so that's always nice. You know, but um, tell, me, tell me a little bit about, you know, putting that together and that experience. Um, so uh, I think I get, obviously my relationship with Amex is because of food and wine. And so a lot of the executives always come to the food and wine classic in Aspen, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie, you know, it was... Back then, and it remains like the pinnacle of of food and wine festivals. And to get invited to speak at it is, you know, is super, super, super. Uh, uh, what's the word? Rewarding and flattering, and and it's the greatest honor. I mean, it it, it really means a lot if you could ask to that. And they they brought me out. This 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 year would have been my twenty fifth food and wine classic. Um, so the executives of Amex would be in the, in this audience a lot of times and they would always come and say like, you know, I, I, we love what you do. We love the way you speak and, and like, we like your style. Um, I think that that, you know, that kind of familiarity with me made it uh, a natural pick for them to look to me for the wine. Although I always joke to my editor, Ray Isle, who's one of my very good friends. And we came up together, like literally through like the same magazines back in the, in the nineties. Um, he could have gotten the job easily, but uh, he was too busy with food and wine. And they came to me and said, like, we, you know, we like that you're a freelancer because we're, you know, this could be a, you know, a good amount of work. And, you know, we were dreaming very big back then. We were looking at the, um, at the, uh, the Virgin uh, Terminal at London, at London in Heathrow, which I have never been to, but I hear it's like, you know, it's, it's, 
it's over the top, you know, like with hot tubs and champagne and caviar and tons and tons of luxury uh, experiences there. And so like, that was like, I would, you know, that when I got invited to the meeting, like, this is what we're going for. Like, we want great champagne. We want this, we want that. And it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like any great development in blueprints that it has to go through like six rounds of, of revisions before you land where you do. Um, and it, it, you know, so we, we dreamed big and then, you know, then had to like come down to reality about like what we could afford to put in there and how it would look. But it was, uh, it was really fun. We did Vegas first. And I, I, I remember thinking like, God, I wish we were in San Francisco or, a, you know, a bigger wine city, like where I could really make a, a splash. But it was perfect that I was in Vegas because I got to practice it, get it all figured out, get all the kinks out. And then San Francisco was number two. And I was able to wrestle uh, a lot more money out of them to build a beautiful wine wall and wine by the glass and all these great things and staff training. And, and we would, you know, we had a uh, a ton of events there like to get buzz for it like you know wine flights every 15 minutes where they would, they would actually you know page all the guests to come visit the the back lounge and i'd be hosting 15 minute wine lessons all day or something like that a oh, lot of fun amazing to just run into you doing that with your like well but with your curiosity and i'm sure you've thought about this before in you know in the wine industry if you could make one change what would it be in the wine industry, one change. Can, can, I mean, we've talked about this. So, are we talking about integrity? Well, like, oh no, but we can. I mean, look, we can. No, we're not. But we can. We can jump to that. I mean, look, I'll. I'll kind of set the tone for it. Um, and you and I have discussed this topic at length before. In fact, at your dining table with great wine in front of us, of course. And 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 this initially might sound odd to whoever's listening for a second, but it's but it's a great analogy. And that's this parallel relationship between the wine industry and, and the industry I work in, which is the marketing and advertising industry, with specific regard to transparency or perhaps lack thereof, let's say. And, and Anthony, I know that you have, I know that you know that I have this intense commitment and, and that my company does as well on this topic of, of transparency, right? But, in, you know, in my world, in the marketing and media world, there are a host of transparency issues, technology, media partners not being transparent with sources of inventory and agencies, ad agencies not being transparent with fees and financial benefits. And, and because we know each other well, you know well that our company Leveling has built a fully transparent organization related to fees and the financial tail of the business. And that's unique in our industry. And I'm, I'm proud of that, that, that we sit there. However, share, share your experiences with transparency in the wine industry, because I find it incredibly relatable to the work that I do every day. So I, I, I kind of stumbled on this as I got more into the educational side of, of wine presenting. Like, so it's not just um, hosting dinners and things like that. It would be real classes. And I would start to, I started to, to build this, um, this lesson that I actually use now a lot on virtual, but it's just to say, okay, so I'm talking to a group of Americans and I'm an American too when I say this, because a lot of people think, oh, you're some fancy wine expert, so you're going to be uh, Eurocentric, which wouldn't be wrong to say, because I actually am absolutely skewed European in my tastes, but it doesn't mean I have, I, I have tons of appreciation for American wine as well. Um, but American culture, wine culture, um, I'll say as an American, you learn about wine by the grape, you speak by the grape, you order by the grape, you think by the grape. Nothing wrong with that. but it's deeply flawed in the respect that you have no idea how it relates to 
the rest of the world. And if we look at us as the new world, North America, South America, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, all of, uh, all of these places make beautiful wine, but all the vines come from Europe. In fact, most of them come from, Spain, from France. And that's hugely, hugely confusing once you make that connection and then go to the French wine aisle uh, in, the, in, in your wine shop or look at the French uh, section of the wine list and realize all you're finding are addresses. And the famous addresses are Champagne, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Provence, et cetera. Um, what do you do? Like, what, what's, what, I don't even know what I'm talking about. What am I looking at? And I say, and then we play Wine Jeopardy and I talk about, oh, so if you like Sauvignon Blanc and I pour you a Sancerre, can anyone make a connection? Like, 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 or we taste a Sancerre or we taste a Chablis and I say, can anyone tell me what the grape is? All to say, Steve, like I get everyone talking about grapes and where they, you know, what they're known as in their their home turf, um, how they're toked, how they're how they're uh, named around the world, and then it leads to we get to Bordeaux, which is always the most confusing and the most famous, but it's a blend, and that's where I say like guys, blending is quite common around the world, and that's why the place name matters because it doesn't matter exactly what's in there, but it, just as long as it's understood that it is in the U.S. where everything is grape named, we don't even understand that there's a potential for blending and it's all because of our labels are not intentionally misleading, but I think when we naively uh, started naming wines varietally here in the US back in the seventies or you know the sixties, um, the rule was that as long as 75% of what's in the bottle is one grape, you could put that grape on the label and not explain what the rest of it is. And that's true to this day today that if it says Chardonnay on the label or Cabernet on the label, it doesn't have to be 100%. And I think, why can't it put on the back label what it is? Why, you know, and some, play, some wineries absolutely do that, but the, the, the standard practice is not to bother. And some people hide it because they're, in, you know, they're strengthening their wines or, or adding more fruit to their wines or adding more acid to their wines by adding some you know, other grape that might be unconventional, but it's allowed and they don't have to disclose it. I think it's weird. You can go to their websites. Usually if you, if you dig, you could find tech sheets or at least some, you know, some winemaker notes or things like that on the websites. If you go, if you know, and no, most people aren't going to bother, but you might be able to find some technical information and it'll tell you, well, this is 76% Cabernet. But you're really having to dig at that point and no one's doing that, right? I mean, the, the right. labels are pretty sparse as they are. Right. And, but I say, like, and, and like I, 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 most people don't even know that they should be looking for it because they don't know that there's any reason to do it like meaning so when, when i say like so you like this cat this pinot you know, so i have this bottle that i'm gonna we're gonna drink together you and i we have pinot noirs in front of us so the supposition is this is pinot noir from sonoma valley or sonoma coast or sonoma sonoma county whatever um is it 100 percent pinot noir i don't know let me turn the bottle around does not say 100 percent on my bottle i'd have to go look on the website now chances are good i know three sticks this is probably 100 percent pinot noir in fact i think it is 100 percent pinot noir like no doubt but they could have thrown 10% of, you know, Merlot in there or something crazy to give it a little more something, something. They don't have to tell us. And that drives me crazy. And so um, a huge lawsuit broke out and I'm, I'm not going to name names, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty big. It was pretty big in the last uh, year or two where a California, a huge California company uh, bought grapes cheaper in Oregon, Pinot Noir, let's say, and then brought them back to California and said it was California wine. And someone who was privy to the, to the, to the uh, transaction reported it and it caused a big you know, kerfuffle. And 
it, it sh and it wasn't the first time and it's they weren't the only ones doing it it would just be like well what's the big deal like you know it's it's american grapes like well no but it's not california grapes and you're calling it x and it's really x and y um and and, and oregon right now is is poised to legislate this to different levels of of intensity and i think that they want you, like they want you to write on the front label 100% Pinot Noir from Willamette Valley, Oregon, or call it call it a fantasy name, call it you know Parker's Pinot, and then on the back you have to disclose what that means because if it's not 75%, that's why I would have a name like Parker's Pinot, and then and Parker's the back, Pinot would be very good by the way. I, I'm 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 behind it, man. I'm Super behind it. Super tasty. We can make it be 100%. Charming. You know, we can say it on the front. Actually, the name Parker's Pinot, 100%. Noir. 100% integrity. Yes. There you go. Yes. I like that. Well, yeah, I mean, look, and it's such a fine line, right? I mean, you could say like, it's not even intentional. And I know even in our industry, some of these things don't happen intentionally. Right. But at the same time, there's a responsibility to educate and be clear, you know, and if you look at, you know, you know, and I think food products that you buy in the grocery are, are the worst at this, where they'll say, well, it's, you know, fat free or something, or something will say it's, you know, 100% grass fed beef. Well, it's like, well, it wasn't grass finished though. So it's not, there's a, they, you know, the last week or two of its life, they stuffed it full of corn. It's not the right. same, the right. same thing, right. To fatten right. it up. So, you know, it's, it's this lack of, I think, accountability to, to, to make sure things are clear and transparent. And, and in our industry, there's, you know, plenty of players that intentionally, um, don't share things because they know that they are marking things up or, creating essentially a tax, if you will, yeah. on, on media, uh, pass through dollars or, or technology. Um, and, and then some, I think aren't doing it fully intentionally, but the same time doesn't mean doesn't make it right in either instance, because it's yeah. bad for, it's bad for the environment. It's, it's bad for in the wine industry. It's bad for the consumer. In my industry, it's bad for the entire food chain and probably is in the wine industry, but the entire food chain of agencies, brands, technology, partners, media publishers, everyone. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Steve, when I, um, I wrote this piece in Esquire 20, 20 years ago, actually, it was 2001, uh, on wine temperature. And I, my, my gripe was, it was a service piece. The gripe was in the greatest restaurants in New York City, the most expensive, fanciest restaurants in New York City, they were serving red wine at room temperature or much worse, much, much worse. And my argument to my editor was, these are sommeliers. These are my, my, you know, my fellow uh, colleagues who know better but they're not doing it for various reasons of there's no where to put it, to store it cold and this and that other thing, but it doesn't make it right. And for the charges, they the charges for the prices they're charging, they should be taken down. And so we did this fun piece where I went around with an instant thermometer, my, my editor's credit card, a driver and a wingman. And I brought my buddy Anthony with me and we went running around tasting wine everywhere. And um, only one out of 13 passed. Laverna Dan was the only one that came even close to perfection. They were actually perfection. Everybody else was crazy off, like 88 degrees at Le Grenouille, uh, 79 at Le Cirque, 74 at Danielle. Like it was just, and it, you know, the, the, the real temperature zone for red wine is 55 to 65 maximum. Right. So when I went back and interviewed the sommeliers afterwards to say, I just, you know, I want you to know I came in and I tested your temperatures and they're terrible. And I want to know why. Can you defend why? you're not serving your wines at the right temperature. And they said, some people complain that it's too cold. They're not used to it. <laughs> and most people don't care or they don't complain. And I'm like, so because they don't complain, you don't, you don't educate them. And even if, they, even if they say it's too cold, you don't educate them because 
people need to know that they're drinking it too warm. Of course, it's going to taste a little different the first time they taste it with a slight chill. I'm not asking you to freeze it, but it turned into this bloodbath of publicity, which was great. You know, which we, you know, I, I wanted it. Um, it was before social media, so there was. It, it, I have no doubt it would have gone viral, but. Um, it, it, it changed things. Five years later, New York Magazine asked me to do it again, and the temperatures had all fallen into the high 60s, low 70s. So, like, it definitely made an impact um, in New York. But again, like, to, to say, like, there's, where's the accountability here? Like, you guys know better. I, we all went to school together. Like, why aren't you serving these wines that are attempted? Like, nobody asks. Nobody cares. Yeah, it's, and it's so lazy, right? It's just better. Like, why can't, why can't we just build really great businesses and really great industries that have clarity and transparency and accountability within them. But it yeah. takes people to do the things that, that I've done, that you've done to, to make that happen. Well, look, it, and, and in our careers, all of us have these tape backs or do-overs, you know, that, that we wish we could go back and be like, ah, I wish I wouldn't have said that or done that or made that choice. Um, what's been one of yours and what did you learn from it? Hmm. It's interesting. Um, the first thing that came to mind, and I don't know why, was quitting travel and leisure. And then I wonder if I ever, without having met Dora at <laughs> Dora Hattress, would I have gotten the advice to go into wine? I didn't know what I was gonna do out of college. I just wanted to be in a big magazine, like a big, you know, like a, a known quantity and get my name out there. So if I'd stayed at travel leisure, if I'd swallowed my pride and put up with all of the, the, the treatment, would it, where, would, where would I be today? I don't know, but I do regret no matter what quitting. Like I should have, I should have, definitely stayed a year. And like, I think like that's, I would expect nothing less of my own kids. And yet no one was guiding me back then. And I quit and regretted it for a long time as I was, you know, writing miserable real estate copy. Um, and, but then again, there was a reason I met Dora and she turned my whole career around. So I wonder, but I, I'm Steve, I'm the, I'm the king of, of second guessing. I, I, I absolutely speak too freely a lot of the time and wonder if I'm a little too opinionated or, you know, a little too forceful. Like you just said, we Italians don't, don't sugarcoat. Um, sometimes a little gruff with people. Listen, but... I don't, I don't know if it's just Italian. I'm not Italian. <laughs> My mouth gets me in so much damn trouble all the time, but you know, like, you know what you're getting. I mean, that's the good thing is like, if you like, listen, if you're spending time with me, like whether it's you, Anthony, or someone I just met, you're, you're getting what you get. Yeah. You don't have to like it. If you don't like it, that's okay. I'm going to move on anyway. I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. But, and so that's a good thing. Well, yeah, so, so I like what you learned there, you know, but you thought, you think you wonder what would have happened, but you, you know, look, I do too. Sometimes like, if you wonder what would happened, like I turned down two jobs, not one, two at Google in 2000. <laughs> and like, like, I don't, I don't remember how many employees they had at the time. Like, let's call it less, let's call it sub 200. Right. <laughs> They didn't wow. have an office in New York at the time, wow. not even yet. So, and, and, you know, that was a, if, if I look at the day they went public, what those options were worth, I mean, you're talking, uh, you know, 40, $50 million financial error. Wow. But it all worked out. Okay. Who knows? I could have moved to Silicon Valley and done heroin in the Valley. Like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would hope not because I'm afraid of needles, but you know, it's who knows what would have happened. I certainly, I don't know that I would have met my wife and how the kids I have and, I really enjoy my life. I might have not never met you. So it all worked out fine. Um, all right. Well, last question for you. Who's the most famous person you've ever sat and shared a bottle of wine with? And it can't be me. 
Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> like 12 people know me. Damn. Um, I am going to say Molly Ringwald. That's a good oh, one. Oh, yeah? So when I did The Moth, okay. uh, they, they set me on the road because I did it in New York City first. And that, that one was, um, there's always a celebrity um, headliner. And in New York, it was Richard Kind, who's um, a great comedian. And he, at the time, was on that show, Spin City. I've, I've played poker with him before. Really? He's a great guy. Um, I, I barely know him, but he was. Well, so- yeah, I don't know him either. I just played poker with him one night, but he was awesome. We'll, we could talk about that offline. Um, he told me that night, um, you should do stand up comedy because I know I was like, never, but we, he was very complimentary to my story and he liked the way I told it. But they sent me on the road and we did the Moth Milwaukee at the Paps Theater and Molly Ringwald was the headliner. And I am a child of the 80s, man. Like, so like to meet Molly Ringwald was such a thrill. And, uh, and she, she, you know, and I brought wine to the rehearsal and she, uh, she was as, as if we went to high school together. We were just chatting, chatting the whole night. And then it wound up becoming like the next day. And then after that, we went out to dinner. Like, and we, we hung out all weekend together. And then uh, she started shouting me out on Twitter saying like, so what should I be drinking tonight, Anthony Giglio? And I was like, oh my God, Molly Ringwald's asking me what, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> what great. to drink tonight. Um, sadly, we've never gotten back together since. We, I'm on her Christmas card list though. I get a holiday card from her and uh, her husband and, and their beautiful kids. We'll have to change that. We'll have to go visit Molly. I would love that. I'll bring Deanna. We'll, you know, we'll, it's like the camel's <laughs> nose. We'll figure our way in. <laughs> um, so there you have it. I'm trying to think of anybody else though, but I think, um, I mean, in, in, that's a good in, one though. Yeah. In, in wine, that's... in wine lore, I mean, I, you know, toasting with Robert Vandavi was like yeah. you know, toasting with God. Um, and, a lot of Italian royalty. I've, I've had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, exposure to great old Italian winemakers that are you know legends in my mind, but nobody knows who the hell they are. That's about it. I've, I've been I I consider myself still Steve's one of the luckiest people um, to you know make lemonade with a lot of lemons thrown my way when I was younger. But I, I, I count blessings all the time, and I can't believe that I've I've actually found success in the virtual world where I didn't even know it existed a year ago. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Anthony. Look, I, I so much appreciate all of your kindness, your expertise, and, and more than anything, your friendship over the years. Tell Tony and the kids I love him. Thank you, brother. And, uh, and you, 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 you as well. And I can't wait to see you in person. Um, right on, brother. I'm going to cook for all of you as soon as we can. Amen. That was an experience, as it should be with Anthony Giglio. And every time he and I spend time together, it always is an experience. And I always learn something I didn't know prior. Here's the most important takeaway. I love Anthony's simple and relatable analogy about the lack of transparency in his work and mine and how he connected the dots between the two. You'll never look at a wine label the same way again. That conversation deserves a share and maybe a review if you're feeling super generous. Learn more at parkerontap.com. y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank 
The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.